Okay, so Brad, I have a bit of a question for you. Yeah, what's up, Scott? Um, okay, so I know juggalos are, like, there's Canadian juggalos, there's American juggalos. How far, like, to what countries do juggalos span? Like, are we talking like... <laughs> Let me tell you something. It doesn't just end at Canadian juggalos and American juggalos. There's Japanese juggalos, there's Filipino juggalos, there's Tahitian juggalos, Australian juggalos, British juggalos. Name a country, there's probably juggalos there. Ghana? There's Ghanesian <laughs> juggalos. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the proper word for that is. Um, there's juggalos who don't even know they're juggalos. We touched on. <laughs> I just saw your baby pinned up. It's twisted. <laughs> That's a ghost. <laughs> Bullshit. Uh, obviously, the juggalo spirit is spreading to your family as well, Scott. Yeah. But um, yeah, at, at juggalo gatherings that I've been to, I've met juggalos from all over the world. Yeah. ICP have toured fairly extensively. Well, obviously, America, Canada. Just recently, they've been doing a lot more of. They've done a fair number of Australian tours. Uh, the UK, they're quite big. Um, but yeah, I, th- I actually saw a video, uh, I think just from this last gathering, where yeah. there, there was a Japanese lady over, and she's a dedicated juggalo and was Crazy. marking out. No one, no one knew what she was saying, but she was excited. She was having a great time. And it transcends language barrier. It transcends cultures. The dark carnivals in every country. tease this last episode but we are talking about the one and only the first joker's card the carnival of carnage so uh immediately and i wanted to touch on this because i i was saying this before we recorded we are i was i was looking at all the album covers to kind of get like a lay of the land yeah and i specifically noticed that like when you showed me the cover, I was like, oh, yeah, I had that pegged as, as probably an early one because it, it seems uh, not simple, but just like the the, the actual coloring on it. There, there isn't defined like black outlines around anything or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, so I was like, that must be one of their first albums, if not the first. This is the first of the Joker's cards at any rate. Does anything else about that color combination jump out to you? Why did they pick those colors? Well, it's because it's 3D, right? 3D? What? <laughs> it looks 3D. It's not 3D. Do you know what 3D is? Yeah, but it, uh, it, it it's, well, I guess it's pink on one side, but it gets that same kind of vibe as 3D. And it also does that yeah. split down the middle where it kind of like does opposite colors. Where do you see blue and pink together? Uh, cotton candy. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's cotton candy colors. It's okay, a carnival. Well, somebody could, it could make... It's 3D cotton candy. Somebody could make the argument that cotton candy is 3D. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that's the argument you're making at this very juncture. Yes. And I'm with you. Most cotton... I haven't seen 2D cotton candy. I'll give you that. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe in the wild future. The FDA hasn't approved it yet. So before I get into exactly what all this means, I'm curious to test you. Um, we've already dropped this word Joker's card around right. a little bit what is your understanding of that what does that mean um i i honestly don't know nearly as much as i probably could about this but my understanding is there is like a series of of albums that were all going to come out sequ- sequentially that they they kind of announced like hey there's this many they're all going to have different themes and they're different characters or something right yeah 
I don't really understand why they're called cards, other than the fact that like the album covers could be cards, I guess, and jokers. Okay. Yeah, that's all I got. Well, that's a perfect transition in the story I'm going to tell you. Let me lay it on you. You see, and I think we touched about this on this in the first episode as well, about how they were ICP, but they weren't originally the Insane Clown Posse. Right. They were inner city posse, and they were trying to be gangster rappers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we heard some of the songs from that, um, all the way up to um, Dog Beats that we were listening to some of last time. Yeah. And up to halfway through the recording of this album, there was not, they were not only the inner city posse, but they had another member named right. John Kick Jazz. Okay. Who, who is Shaggy Tudo's older brother. Okay, so it's kind of like when, when Destiny's Child started and they used to have four members, Beyonce's sister. I guess so. I'm going <laughs> fucking think about Destiny's Child. Isn't that, like, is that third one eye or third eye or something? No, that's TLC. Destiny's Child oh. is like Beyonce, Kelly Rowland, and Michelle Williams, I want to say. And they also had Solange, which was Beyonce's uh, sister. I bet yeah. she wishes she didn't quit, hey? Or yeah. did she die? Well, no, she left and then did her own thing. But the, Okay. But, yeah, like, Beyonce was clearly the better one, so she stuck her in. Okay, but same thing here, you know. Um, John kicked jazz. Eventually, he was busy with girls and other hustles that he had, and he was sick of uh, the bullshit of trying to hustle and make it in the music industry, and he did quit. Um, there was never any beef between them. I think they were always close, and uh, he, he has passed since then, sadly. Rest in peace. But, um... There was never any feud or anything like that. He parted ways. They did get a replacement member very early on, which we probably actually won't touch on very much because he only appeared on an EP. And this season, I don't think we're going to touch too much on the EPs, which is a okay. shame because there's some great things. They're often called the sideshows, and they, oh. come, they come between the Joker's cards. That's fine. <laughs> um, so he appeared on Beverly Kills 50187. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Greasy was kind of the stand-in, and mostly because they didn't want their, their it, it to look like they were weakening or falling apart so early in. So they needed the three clowns on stage. After yeah. Greasy left, they decided, no, it's fated to just be Joe and Joey, Violent J and Shaggy, too dope. But he was still there for half of this album, and you heard him on some of these songs that we heard today. So if you heard a voice, even though the voices are young and harder to distinguish at this point, right. if you heard one that sounded really different, that was probably John Kick Jazz. Okay. Unless you're thinking of Esham, in which case, different. I, I, I think Esham was noticeable enough. Um, I, there was, I, like, I might have in my notes on some of these songs marked it down as uh, talking about Shaggy. I might have been talking about him. Okay. So, so, so just heads up, I might have get them screwed up. We'll get to that, because they do sound a little bit similar, because they are brothers. Yeah. Um, John Kick Jazz being the older brother, and that's how um, Jay actually met Shaggy, is he was friends with John Kick Jazz. And oh. Shaggy would tag along. Weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how I met Dave. <laughs> <laughs> you were friends with Dave's older brother? Well, no, Dave was friends with my older brother. Oh, Kyle, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That actually makes sense. Yeah. You're the Shaggy of the right. Dave and Kyle relationship. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Nobody listening has any context for that unless they've heard uh, Tell Me a Story with Bo and the Juggalo. Where yeah, we talk right. about Dave all the time. So, and yeah. Kyle once in an episode that I think got deleted. And, 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 and my podcast just about Dave called Dave Chat. <laughs> You've never sent me the link to <laughs> I would stream all of that in a heartbeat. Um, so about halfway through, things were changing, and they were beginning to try and differentiate themselves a little bit. And one thing that Jay realized is Detroit is not a gangster rap scene. It's mm -hmm. a weird fucking scene. Because the two other big names on the rap scene at this point, and actually as a quick tangent, i got to differentiate here. Yeah. Because you're probably wondering about like the shelter and 
all of that. Yeah, okay. Um, and th- those are two different scenes. W- one part of rap was like trying to sell albums and put albums in store. And these were the kind of ones with characters. So that was yeah. ICP slightly later on, Eshawn the Unholy, um, Awesome Dre earlier than that, and um, uh, Kid Rock. Yeah, right. Right. Who, who was doing a skid thing and then kind of like a farmer thing, talking about tractor life and all that. And we'll get into those latter two yeah. in a moment. And then the other side, and I don't know exactly when it really began to pop off, was like the shelter that Eminem came up through. Yeah, it was like the ciphers. The freestyle, exactly right. Yeah, ciphers. Yeah. Um, working on the craft rather than the showmanship and the artistry of it. Right, right. So two very different sides of the same coin. Um, there has been a little bit of beef between, well, particularly ICP and Eminem, but that's... Yeah. Pretty ancient history now. Um, I don't <laughs> yeah. think any jugglers give a shit about that. I don't think anybody involved does at this point. It seems kind of stupid now, looking back, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and in this season, we might not touch on it, because it was mostly during the Bizarre Bizarre era, and unfortunately, we won't cover those albums on this, because this is focused mainly on the Joker's cards. But, hey, if we keep going with this, I definitely want to touch on Bizarre. I want to touch on that whole situation and that time frame, because that was a really cool time, and that was just when I was really beginning to discover it. Yeah. Those were, in fact, the first albums that I got to um, go to the store and buy on day one. So Jay was trying to differentiate themselves and figure out what the inner city posse can be to set them apart from any other gangster rap. Okay. And that's about the time that he had a dream. Um, a real dream. A real dream, okay. according to the way he says it. Okay. <laughs> uh, the story he tells is that he dreamed about this humongous carnival approaching him. Yeah. And here, Calliope organs, and there was this kind of giant, imposing jester who just started slowly tossing down Joker cards. Okay. And after six fell, Jay kind of like shot up into the sky and saw it all from above, and then like woke up gasping for breath. Is the short version of that? Yeah, it could be legend kind of thing, but it's it's yeah. hard to say. You know, I'd, we'd have to sit down and talk with him himself. So right. Jay, you know, call us up. We'll be happy to interview you <laughs> and talk about that. Right. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see about that, Jay. <laughs> hey, don't call him out yet. Um, well, I, I, I did see him being interviewed by some children once, so we might have a shot. Which interview is that? He's done a lot of interviews. Th- there's, oh, there's, yeah, I do know that one. Yeah, yeah there's this YouTube That wasn't too long ago. That, that is, is almost exclusively um, just, well, it is exclusively, but like uh, it's the children um, interviewing like famous bands, and it's usually like really messed up bands that children shouldn't be around. Yeah. So it's like the guy from Slayer and stuff like that. Yeah, I think they did Guar at one point. They did, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, if children can interview ICP, if fucking Martin Bashir can interview Martin ICP. Martin Bashir? Yeah. <laughs> sure did. And you should listen to that interview. Maybe we'll talk about it in another episode. It's fucking hilarious. I bet. Because he constantly, like, reads quotes from their songs. It's like, Mr. Violent. What Mr. Violent? <laughs> what, what do you mean when you say, from Pluto to your anus... We are underground famous. (laughs) It's just the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life, and I love it. Because they really school him in it, and to me, he sounds like an absolute idiot in it. Martin Bashir, you're probably listening to this show. Yeah, you're a punk. You're a punk. Come at us. (laughs) Call us up, bitch boy. Anyways, we digress. Um, So that led to a conversation where, you know, John Kickjass had just quit. They sat down with their manager, Alex. They called Jay Shaggy came and like, it all kind of hinged on Shaggy at that point. Jay wanted to know like, Jay, are you, are you still in? And I believe the exact one was, shit, y'all, you know I'm in. <laughs> so shortly after that, they began to redefine the whole thing. They became the insane clown posse and the Joker card concept came up. 
Okay. Now, as I've said before, the, the original printing of, and this one I showed you isn't the original printing because I'm not taking my original printing out when you've got coffee and cords and I've got whiskey flying around. That's not coming out right now. <laughs> but um, the original version didn't have the dedicated to the sick or the dedicated to the butterfly line. Okay. Or there would be six faces of Dark Marvel. So they may have just looked at his Ad Joker's card and not seen an end point right. at this juncture. But they definitely transformed the way they put albums together. And yeah. I think it was originally meant to be called Carnival of Carnage. But I think as they defined it as a Joker's card and kind of went along with that. Yeah. And if they didn't even call it Joker's card at this point, somebody hit us up on the Gentleman Juggalo on our Facebook group and let us know what history we're missing. Because like I said, you know, I got down in 99. I wasn't in Detroit at the time. I'm not the sharpest on that subject. And I definitely have room to learn. But um, if you look at the liner notes that I could show you, they're kind of written as this like open letter. Okay. Almost a threat to like a governor or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it, it talks about the conditions of the ghettos they live in, um, wasted money that the U.S. government has spent on wars and stuff like that while yeah. ignoring the poor. And finally, it, it ends with threatening that if things don't change, tickets will be issued to the Carnival of Carnage. Well, it's a good thing that, that all that's changed since then, hey? Mm-hmm. I think they really made a difference there. <laughs> hey. it, it, it's funny, though. You know, people hate ICP, and ICP is so derided, but... These things that they were talking about, and this is 1992 we're yeah. talking about here. These things are even more of a, a prescient issue in society and something that people are talking about more and more often. Yeah. So I think that's kind of neat that they were already on that ticket way, way back then. Right, yeah. Um, now, the idea of the Carnival of Carnage, and I think you got that. We'll talk about the intro track in just a moment. Yeah. But um, the idea of it essentially is... Taking the ghetto that they grew up in, the violence and the poverty and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this, like, the question that I had is specifically just to stop here for a sec. Yeah. Okay, so this would have been around Iraq War Part 1? Desert Stormish. Desert yeah. Storm. Okay, just curious, because you were saying, like, about the wars and all that kind of stuff. I was just curious what unnecessary war the United States was in at the time. Pick <laughs> one at any given moment. Okay, okay. But, um, so this is George Bush senior hate. Yeah, were. yeah. Okay. Um, so anyways, Violent Jay's older brother, Drumsteady, was over in Desert Storm. Oh, so, okay. so they knew a fair bit about it. And so, so the, anyways, I was saying the idea of the Carnival of Carnage is taking all the, the poverty and the anger and the violence that they grew up with that they saw in the ghetto. Yeah. Putting it on wagons and driving it right into the rich neighborhoods. Okay, 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 okay. So you That's heard a little sense. of that in the yeah. intro, um, where, and I'll, I'll get, we'll talk more about the intro right away. But yeah. it does that line, which I've heard made fun of, and I think it's the perfect description of it, where he's like, "To the little town of, of, well, your town." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've heard people say like, "Pick a name of a town." It's like, oh, they're yeah. trying to personalize it. They're, try, they're trying to make it yours. So they're taking all this stuff from inner city, like southwest Delray, Detroit, and driving it off to, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, and f- fancy places like this that have maybe never tasted that. And I don't know anything about Madison. Maybe they have. I just picked a fucking random name. Right. Just like I said, they shouldn't have. Well, and it's the same thing. Like, it, it kind of reminds me of, like, the old slasher movies. Is like like Elm Street. There's an Elm Street in every small town. There's, there's a, um, like, Haddonfield is, is synonymous with, like, just kind of, like, the town that's close to the big town. Exactly, yeah. And, and, like, they always pick a place that you could go, like, oh, that could be my town, or that, that lake, Crystal Lake is just, like, like, whatever. Maybe they changed it for this story, kind of. Yeah, thing. it yeah. makes it relatable. It's, it's like the every man except the every town, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's going to the suburbs, and it's going to where people 
think of poverty and gang warfare and violence as just something that happens out there to other people, yeah. and, and it's bringing it into their faces. And because of that, this is one of the a lot more brutal albums that ICP's actually ever done, yeah. and not much is off the table with this one. On a lot of albums, they're quite care like they don't kill a lot of children for the most part. There's <laughs> yeah, not a yeah. lot of like violence against women for the most part, because um, they're talking more against those concepts in a lot of what they do. But in this, you hear a lot of it. Yeah, and you could hear a lot of anger. Like yeah. there's like tons of anger mm-hmm. in these songs. And, and it's easy to mistake that for being pro those things. Right. Whereas if you're missing the underlying idea of the album is saying like we lived with this. Like how do you like the concept? What if you had to see that? What if it was your family getting slaughtered? Right. And I will say, just for like how they're telling it, I don't think that it's necessarily because of how crazy it is that it comes across as them being pro that. I think that they just kind of don't do a good, as good of a job in this one to kind of make that uh, uh, noticeable. You know what I mean? Because I was thinking that. I was like, oh, this is kind of a departure. Like, you know what I mean? I, I was like, wow, that's I can kind of see nuts. what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot less filter to it. They're not yeah. doing it through stories. They're doing it through more experiential. But I think yeah. that fits with the underlying tone of the album Carnival of Carnage because it's meant to be putting it in your face. It's not meant to be looking at it through a specific lens or thinking about it as an obstacle or an aspect of an afterlife situation, which a lot of the other Joker's cards are. This right. is just about, in fact, this is the only one of the first deck, really, that isn't about facing something in your afterlife. This is about facing something in your current life. Right. Yeah, like I, I get the impression that it's like um, they they were so angry about this at the time that it kind of bled through. Like, like I feel like in in later days they would make a character, but it was unclear if there was characters sometimes. Where That's like, a really oh, good analogy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like they kind of separated a little bit and went, "This is how bad it could be if somebody was pushed pushed to the edge." And in this one, it felt more like the they're going, "We're pushed to the edge. Like we're gonna go nuts." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great, great insight. I like that a lot. Um, I think in a lot of ways, this kind of predates the car- the dark carnival theme, mm-hmm. but it does a lot to represent, like, the, particularly the dark side of the dark carnival. I'll, and right. I'll talk about that dichotomy a lot throughout these episodes. So, like, the darkness is showing what happens when you're not respectful, when you don't value life, or where you're an evil or wicked person. Yeah. Whereas the the, the other side of the dark carnival is very much about showing the hope and if you can distinguish like oh who they're killing it's showing who they're not killing what they're celebrating right and what the good things in life are and there comes back and not on this album but the concept of dancing with the dead and celebrating with with our loved ones and those who are gone by yeah and a lot of those karmic influences like that, less nihilistic kind mm-hmm. of yeah, yeah. yeah this yeah. one is a lot more nihilistic of an album for sure um so the sound is still early here but there are some brief um, carnival sounds slowly yeah. creeping in. You can hear a little bit. Um, the intro does a good job of capturing that. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm just gonna like if uh, if you're ready to jump ahead to the intro. Um, yeah, know. let's do it. Yeah. Um, actually, I'll point out one thing that I, I forgot to mention. Um, yeah. There's so many. As I was going through and just playing you the songs earlier. Yeah. And once again, just full disclosure, we did uh, listen to the songs before recording this, whereas we will play them as we go through. But every time I had to skip a track, I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm not playing this one. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Psychopathic, I'm not playing. Yeah. Uh, Ghetto Freak Show, I'm not playing. It was hard to pick. And one that I left off that you probably would have been quite amused by is called Is That You? And that features a very, very young uh, kid rock. Oh, really? the story of that, um, you you heard the one, you heard one that had Isham on it, and we'll get to that later. But uh, what happened was they had Awesome Dre slated to appear on their album. 
okay. six hundred dollars, <laughs> and they went to the studio to meet with him. Yeah. And Isham happened to be at the studio, yeah. and they got to talking to Isham. They're like, "Oh shit, you got awesome Dre on your album, hey? How much are you paying him?" And they're like, "Oh, six hundred dollars." And Isham's just like, he's a hustler, right? Especially yeah. back then, I'm sure. But he says to them, "Fuck, like, slide me that six hundred dollars, I'll be on your album." <laughs> So they just straight yeah. up like called up Austin Taylor yeah, like, sure. oh, we lost our money. Like, we, we, we can't get you on the album now. We're so sorry. <laughs> Gave it to Esham and him on the album. A little bit later, they ran into Kid Rock. And he's like, oh, you guys had Esham on your album? Yeah, we paid him $600. He'd do it. And Kid Rock said, I'll do it for $700. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that's the Detroit scene. I thought you'd think that's funny. But uh, yeah, yeah you, you had something to say onto the intro track that we listened to, which is simply called... Yeah, there's, like, this is incredible. Like, what I've noticed with them is they're really good with the soundscapes. Like, again, like, you can pick, put yourself where they are. Um, with, the, with the voiceover at the, the beginning there, um, it, it feels, like, well-rehearsed, well-paced. Well, like, it's really literary. Like, mm-hmm. us, usually they're a little less um, less poetic, I find. But it was, it was pretty... Um, uh, pr- pretty uh, heavy for an intro. Like that was a that was a pretty impactful intro for an album. Not to jump too far ahead, but wait till you hear the next album. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll be covering that right away. But you're you're absolutely right. And I made some notes about that too as we were listening through it. And mm-hmm. once again, for context, this is '92. So at this point, Violent J is only 20. Shaggy's 18. Right. And these are guys with like a grade eight education as well. Yeah. But you're right. Like the writing of it. Is, is pretty good. You, even myself, as a, a decently experienced writer, like I was listening to that, and even still to my mind, like the way that they're talking about the small details, like the wind yeah. chimes and the melodies creeping through the streets and stuff like that. Yeah. They, they've got a great sense of an, an ability to capture what you call soundscapes. And I'll often describe it as like pageantry and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And it goes back to that split into two different rap scenes, right? Like, yeah, you, you'll hear all day people say, like, oh, ICP can't really rap. Yeah. But, well, I mean, they're very competent rappers. I give them more credit than most people do. But yeah, if you're going to hold them up against a guy like Shady or even Eshaan, yeah, they don't have that kind of flow. But what they have is this artistic ability to, like, paint pictures and produce, like you said, soundscapes. And yeah. they, they have a poetry to them that's different, but entirely as valid and deserves as much merit, to my mind. Well, and like big personalities too. Like, like it's one of those. Like, l- let's bring it back to um, to, to Public Enemy, right? Like Public Enemy. Yeah. Public Enemy. It, it was the the two two members were just complete opposites. Uh, like, uh, like you got Chuck D, and he's the technical. Like, you're like, wow, his, his rhymes are on point. And then you got Flava Flav on the other side, which is you know he's the biggest personality in the world, but he's a garbage rapper, right? Yeah. And that's kind of kind of. Like they have that same kind of vibe that uh, that Flava Flav has, where it's like a big personality and like nobody remembers Chuck D, right? <laughs> Unless you're a fan of Public Enemy, mm-hmm. everyone knows who Flava Flav is. Like Flava Flav stands out as soon as you hear him, and it's kind of the same thing with this. Like I noticed that with Isham on there, where you're like, you're like, wow, he's he's pretty damn good, but yeah, I I won't remember anything he said. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. It's yeah. more about the um, technical aspect than the performance and the voice of it. Yeah, yeah. Like, a lot of respect to him. He's, he's good, but... Yeah, and yeah. Sean will come up a lot throughout their career. He's on and off with them for a, a long time, still working with them to this day. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, Anything else stand out about that intro? Uh, I like the term unwilling witness. <laughs> I just wrote that down in my notes. It's a kind of fun... Uh, I, like the it's whole, got a neat assonance to it, doesn't it? Unwilling yeah. witness. Yeah. An unwilling witness. And, and, and I, I like how they kind of edge you into that. Like where at first when they're presenting it, you're like, okay, they're going along. And you're like, okay, all these people are just victims here. Like at first it looks like it's, it's kind of like a like uh, baits you into the carnival and then yeah. gets you. I wasn't expecting that, to be honest, that turn. Really? Did you think of, did it make you think of anything else we've heard? Uh, well, other than like like in the, the Halloween stuff, right? Like like there's some of those intros. There was the, the one with the, the peddler or whatever that came in. Uh, that wasn't the Halloween episode. That was the very that, first That was episode, the first yeah, one, okay, yeah, yeah. Where we yeah, listened yeah. to the riddle box sample That's when the one, he comes yeah. into town. And, you know, you like toys! It exactly like reminded me of that. But it like... That one felt more like, like I was saying earlier, with the, like the uh, moralistic kind of thing. Like that one felt like there was like they're punishing the bad guys, and this one was just like fuck all the all kind of thing. And they just come to. That's why I wasn't expecting it because I'm kind of used to the like. Yeah. Well, at that point, like yeah. rich people were the bad guys. They didn't. Right. They weren't mature enough really to distinguish much further than that. I think in their own moral codes. Yeah. Well, and like you're saying, like how old are they at this point? Like twenty and eighteen. Twenty and eighteen. Yeah. Like who. <laughs> Who who understands that much nuance at that time, right? Like, yeah. if you're angry and from a poor area, like, you're just angry at everybody. Didn't even finish high school, just growing up in, like, shit poverty. Yeah. That's, right, yeah. That's about as far as you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, if it wasn't for this, I might not have went any further than that. Exactly, right. Um, that, that, that was all I had written down for that, because that, that's a pretty short intro. But, I mean, like, yeah, yeah. That, that was pretty impressive. Like, I, I enjoyed that intro to an album. Cool, good to hear. I think it does a great job of just capturing the carnival starting off it's still early it's still not as well defined and i'm glad they revisited that theme in things like the riddle box sampler and other places as well that we'll see but the next song that we listen to is called wizard of the hood and this song has so much history with the band um we listened to dog beats earlier in the first episode mm -hmm. and that song is in, on this but it also actually goes back further than that it goes back to intelligence and violence in 1989 where it was recorded as wizard of del rey Okay. Yeah. Which is a street in Detroit, right? Uh, I think uh, it's an area. An area. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly, but yeah, you'll hear them talk about Delray Plain. Like Southwest Delray is kind of like a neighborhood. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it, it first intelligence violence, like I said. So seventeen violent J, fifteen Shaggy. At, at least that far back this song goes. Um, then it appears here on Carnival of Carnage, and then it was resurrected as a full-length solo album by Jay in 2003 where instead of just one song it was like a full album fleshing out the entire concept and all the different psychopathic artists played a different character on that album oh cool cool, mm -hmm. cool. and then at the gathering of 2017 yeah. that album was performed as a full-on live stage show musical <laughs> like the whiz but like exactly. a juggalo version of the whiz a juggalo version of the whiz i <laughs> my god do i wish i was at that gathering any juggalos here who are listening to that to this who were at that know exactly how fresh that was um anybody yeah. who's seen the dvds which i have been fortunate enough to get my hands on know that they absolutely killed that production <laughs> it was amazing yeah i've been pretty they pretty had the awesome. costumes they had like the uh the giant led screen in the back to do like the uh effects of like the yellow brick road going off and like the tornado and all of that Jesus. it was unreal so i truthfully don't know and i'm not aware if if Anybody listening is aware of this and can give us more light, hit us up on the Gentleman Juggalo on Facebook. 
but I don't know why Violent J is so fucking obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> That's an awesome movie. It is, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's little, like he really loves the movie or if it's just a concept that he loved rapping about and yeah. it's just come up. I don't know why, but it sure as hell has. One funny detail in this song. Oh, actually one thing before that is um, this is one that was recorded at uh, Miller Midi Productions. And so yeah. I don't know if you noticed okay. anything about the beats or the production, I, but it was that exact same super early production that I, I talked about in the first lot. episode. I have a lot to say about this album's production, and I won't be kind. <laughs> about the whole album? A good chunk of the album. Okay, interesting. Good chunk we'll, of the We'll album. have to break it down and see which of those are Miller Midi and which aren't, because like I said, this album kind of split off halfway through production. Okay. So this is one of the early ones. This was done by Chuck the Snake Miller. And the it is, Snake. Yeah, it is. He's the one, remember I told you, he'd just do like, here's an 808 beat. I was talking about that yeah. in the first episode and just almost like sold him beat by beat the whole song. This guy fucking sucks. This <laughs> like, guy to say that. sucks. Yeah, he's yeah. a snake and he's probably dead by now because he was an old hippie at that time. Yeah. However, this song does have pretty dope bass lines. <laughs> and a lot of the voices and personalities, once again, I think an a cool taste of that pageantry. Um, the one other funny thing I'll go on and talk about is um, yeah. in the very opening lines, um, he, he's talking about how what happened and like drunk at the party and all that. Yeah. And then you hear, well, go on forehead and rap. Yeah. And that was a nickname he had because Violent J has such a big forehead. He certainly does. Mm-hmm. I, I figured that was just him balding. But like he's always had that. He's head. always had that forehead. Remind me, and I'll show you some early, <laughs> early pictures of Violent Shay at like 17 years old, and he's still got that humongous fucking forehead. <laughs> and he used to be nicknamed Forehead because of it. And he's learned to make it his because you've seen me do the Violent Shay face paint. You right. might have even tried the Violent Shay face paint at one time. It's, it's hard. hard to do if you don't have about half a foot of forehead. Right, those eyebrows, thick as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the production. Oof. Okay. So the first thing that I noticed was the big 808 kick drums in it. Big, like, so the, the, that big like hum, like that was the first thing that I noticed, and I love that that type of kick, um, especially the way they used it, where it's that big like boom, boom kind of kick. I really, right, yeah. I, I really love that usually, and uh, so I was excited until the synth came in. And then I was like, what the fuck are they doing here? <laughs> this, okay, so this, uh, it, so it's like- either Which I'm, part was the synth? Help me understand what you're talking It was like the bass line there. Oh, okay. The, the bass line's played on a synthesizer. So it goes like <laughs> Yeah. I love that. I don't know what you're talking about. That's so it is, cool. It is overpowered. Like, like it's on all of these tracks that that synth, I think it's a Moog, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's a, a Casio, somebody correct me on this. I think it's a Moog, but it has, it's so overpowering that the... the a Moog? Yeah, it's a Moog. That, that sounds like a type of gooey. It's, <laughs> it's a name of a synthesizer, and if I'm not mistaken, it's a guy's name. Huh. Like Charles Moog or something. <laughs> Ricky Moog. Um, yeah, but uh, it's one of the first synthesizers um, ever made, and... Um, People still love it today, but it was just, it was really raw and it was a little too like aggressive in the mix and it was hard to not just pay attention to it, which is, I think, a failing for the the producer just in the fact that like if you kind of aren't confident in it, turn it down. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like Interesting. I don't know if I agree. I love how that bass kicks. I could see it wreck in some songs, but I think it works in that one. 
Um, the, there is also uh, the the cool like I, I wrote it down as the sweet Kanye style pitched up over the rainbow thing. Yeah, and it has that same. Whoever put that in, if that is the producer that put that part in, what, where, how did he learn that? Not everything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it it felt really out of place because it was suddenly like, oh, cool, cool sample, and it was like a cool pitch sample, which takes like some effort. So so that's kind of strange. Um, I, I would imagine they might have had like, do they have a DJ that works with them or something like that that could have sampled that. Maybe it could yeah. have been Shaggy doing it. He did a little bit of DJ work because there was some scratching on this album too. Mm-hmm. So, so I was thinking maybe maybe that guy or um, yeah, most of that was probably Shaggy. Okay, so that might might have been him. Um, the other thing that I kind of noticed was once again they had like um, like that Ice Cube NWA style rhymes mm-hmm. that that they still didn't feel like um, they it did it didn't feel like themselves yet. Like, They're still working on this stuff for sure. Yeah, I like the con- like the song itself. Like the content was great, but the rhymes didn't feel like um, didn't feel authentic to them. You, you they, know what I mean? They hadn't found their personalities yet. Yeah. And the next episode that we do, we're looking at the second Joker's card. We're going to see that's the transition point, and then you're going to see them really hit their stride. Right. Yeah. And I'm excited about that because that's that's more more what I'm kind of familiar with. Um, the other thing that I'm going to say, and man. I'm gonna have juggle. It's coming at me so hard for this. Um, <laughs> for the rest of your life, you're gonna look in the mirror, and all of a sudden there's a clown behind you. So I, I think now that you're saying it's that guy, it might have been the guy, but I have it written down as Jay going off time on on his rhymes. There is a point where he was fast over the beat. Okay. It's either he was fast over the beat, or the guy was playing the beat manually and accidentally fucked up. <laughs> Either one is entirely possible. I'm not totally sure, but there were some off-time moments, and definitely, like, this is a track that if I were them, I would have remade just to hear it the right way, because it felt like it could have been a different way and much better. uh, They straight up would not have had the money to remake it. Right, yeah. (laughs) Like, they're working jippy lubes and A&Ws and stuff to pay for this album. Yeah, I felt like that that song was rough. Like, I I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. A little rough. Yeah, like I, I like the, the content, but like I said, I was like, while I was listening to the lyrics, I kept on getting distracted by the, the music being blared. So funny enough, this is at least their third take of this song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What the, <laughs> what the fuck? Okay, so, so that's my take, and I know I'm going to take some heat for this probably, because I'd imagine this is a pretty, like, beloved song. <laughs> Juggalos, right in. Tell Scott what an asshole he is. Um, yeah. Music nerds write in, tell him he's right. Tell me I'm an asshole. Yeah, music nerds write in, tell me if it's a Moog. Yeah, I want to know if it's a Moog. Yeah. And, and what the guy's first name is. I hope it's Mickey Moog. Mickey, Mickey Moog. Moog. <laughs> or is Moog short for something? It could be like Moogler. No, no I think it's actually a last name, like like uh, like Francois Moog or something. I'm honestly just imagining a ghoulie in a tweed jacket. Right <laughs> ghoulie. <laughs> Fucking ghoulies. If you don't know the ghoulies, look them up. If you don't know the ghoulies, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> what the fuck life. are you doing? They came out of the toilet. They had fun. Figured out. Yeah. Okay. The next song up that I chose to play anyways is Night of the Axe. Right. Now this one is a motherfucking classic. And let me tell you something, because it started off a little thing that, I don't know if there's an official name for it, but it's basically like a night of series. Every okay. couple of years, every couple albums, there's a night of song on it. Okay. And there's four of them so far. And eventually throughout the series, we'll look at all of them. But the most recent was just released this year on Fearless Red. And it's 
and it's called Night of Red Rock. But there's also been Night of the Chainsaw and Night of the 44. And that feels like kind of a throwback to like, um, uh, like, uh, like kind of schlocky like exploitation movies, right? Like there was a lot of those like Night of the Demon, Night of the Devil, yeah. Night of the Axe. You know, like it, when I saw the title alone, I was like, oh, this is like a like a throwback to all those like uh, Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Monster, well, whatever. It, it's interesting because the way it started out, you know, there's there's a lyric on this album, not one we heard, but. It was the Night of the Axe, the Night of the 44. Yeah. And Night of the Axe is on the first Joker's card, mm-hmm. and Night of the 44 is on the last, Hell's Pit. Okay. The last of the first decade, and we'll get to all that. Yeah, yeah, I'll have questions about that. <laughs> about the... 40, uh, no, just the 44. the 44, I think. Just wondering if it's a reference to um, uh, 44 Caliber Killer. Mm. Uh, well, I mean... 44 is just a type of gun, but... Yeah, but I mean, yeah. like, uh, yeah. Was he in one night? No, but I mean, like, yeah. did strike at night. Maybe not directly, but okay. maybe partially. Okay. And maybe I'll pick that song to play. Okay, fair enough. Well, I'll almost definitely pick it, because we want to explore the Night of series. Yeah. Um, this song, as well as a song called Black in Your Eyes, was left off the Island version of this. See, when ICP signed with Island, they basically agreed to put out the whole back catalog. Except some things that had a fucking problem. Yeah, okay. And this was one of them. They didn't want to put out this song, and they didn't want to put out Black and Nuance. I think that's why they didn't appear anyways. Now, this one's a really in-your-face one. It's yeah. violent as hell. They're, they're killing families. They're killing cops. And the rap style, I don't know. You've probably got some notes about it. I don't know what you'll compare it to. Yeah. But, like, it comes harder than they do on a lot of different songs. I, I put it as, it, it reminds me of LL Cool J a little bit. Huh? I know, no, I, I, a lot of people kind of think he's kind of a whack rapper, but I mean, like, if you listen to his old stuff, it kind of has that intense. same. intense. Like, if you're thinking of, like, Phenomena or Candy, then he's kind of soft. But if you listen no. to him on, like, 4321 or something like that. Yeah, I'm thinking of, like, the first, like, the Mama Said Knock You Out era yeah. of LL Cool J, where he was still trying to, like, be hard, you know? <laughs> um... And uh, I also put down a, a note here that it said uh, it, there's a lot of stank on the on the vocals in the second verse onwards. First verse starts out a little weak, but as soon as the second verse comes in, there's a lot of like um, I don't know how to say it, but like a lot of like attitude style to his his uh, mm-hmm. delivery there. Now that's something that they really mastered in later songs, and I'm glad you picked up on that because I think that you're right that there is a little bit of that in this song. It's yeah. pretty subtle, and it might not have even been done intentionally. Right. But this, the way that particularly Jay builds his attitude through a song, and he can start off like kind of soft and unsure, and then it's almost like he's going crazy as the song transgresses. Right. Yeah, yeah and that's definitely what you get in this. And, and just, okay, to back up to that island thing, I, I got to ask some questions about this. Yeah. Um, and you might not know, but I, I'm really curious now that you mentioned that. Um, so the black in your eyes and this night of the axe, would would that be like were they left off because of violence towards women? Quite possibly. Black in Your Eyes is definitely like a hundred percent violence towards women. That's okay. With the entire idea of the song, and there's plenty of it in this one as well. Now there are some other examples on the album. Yeah. Um, but not as explicit, or mm, there's some fairly explicit ones. Redneck Ho is pretty explicit. Um, and you know what? It could have even been like maybe they had a sample in those songs that they just couldn't get the rights for or something. Well, I, I got a theory on yeah, this. Yeah, lay it on me. Because what year was was the Island version? Uh, Island version probably would have been released around 99. Okay, so um, not quite lined up with that, but there was that era for a while there where uh, Tipper Gore 
was uh, was making a big stink. Like, remember, like, it originally started in, like, the 80s, but it was, like, the big push um, during the Reagan administration where it was, like, uh, the putting, Fucking Reagan. putting the uh, parental advisory sticker on albums, right? Oh, yeah. Like, that started, and then there was, like, a big pushback on banning albums and not putting albums in certain... In, like, remember that whole thing where it was, like, this album, like, Naughty by Nature is banned from Walmart. And it was, like... Okay. And that kind of stuff. So I know that specifically there are certain record companies that, like, played that game and didn't play that game. So I, I remember growing up in my HMV. HMV is like a Canadian music store. Yeah. Um, Her Majesty's Video it stands for. <laughs> and it's not fresh. around anymore. It's completely gone now. Yeah. But back in my day when I was first buying rap albums, all of the rap was kept in a different room. Yeah. You had to go through these big heavy doors to get it in. It and felt that, like porno. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it straight up felt like sneaking into the adult section at a video store and it Still. made rap that much cooler because you could get Marilyn Manson and you could get you know, yeah. death cunt or whatever you fuck you think of, <laughs> bottle surfers and stuff like that, yeah. right next to Willie Nelson and I don't know who the fuck else, but yeah. oh, if you wanted some rap, you had to go through these heavy doors and there's like a security guy, they, I don't think it was like age restricted, but it's just like they, they sectioned it off, they quarantined it, it was almost like rap had its own ghetto. Yeah, the, the, well, there there was a big push against rap, and like it was partially like you know racially motivated. I think it was highly racially yeah. motivated because it was yeah. yeah I always always mention this, but it, it it drives me nuts when when people are being like, oh like uh, you know the the song you down with OPP like everyone was <laughs> yeah, losing you know their me. mind. Everyone was losing their mind over that. No one knows that song. I reference that all the time. Really? Yeah. You don't hang out with them. Enough hip hop. That's true. You don't. <laughs> I mean, like, despite being a juggalo, I mean, like, but um, uh, it, it, during that time, like, they're like, oh, yeah, OPP is horrible. But, like, during that same period of time, there was also, like, Cannibal Corpse and, like, yeah. Anal Cunt and, like, completely like, fine. These Just fucking, good, wholesome white music. These fucking monstrous bands that, like, had no spotlight on them, despite being, like, 10 times crazier. But it was specifically because they were trying to link up like like a they were trying to profile every black person basically that mm. wasn't living in Bel Air on TV. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice pot shot. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that was my little soapbox speech. Um, let's get back into this song. So this song's obviously fucking brutal. We can agree on that. Not the most brutal thing out there at the time, but. Another thing that stands out, they're still really attached to like the street and the ghetto imagery. All of the right. violence, all of the anger is a lot more grounded and real than it later became when they began to introduce the clown motif a little bit later on. What right. Are, what are your thoughts on that, Scott? Uh, well, to, to be honest, that didn't really like, in this song, that didn't really uh, clue in for me. I kind of thought it was more of like a character piece. Yeah. Um, like just from knowing who, the, like the, this is one of the songs that I was kind of like unclear on. You know, I was saying like it's it's I, I wasn't sure whether they were, um, uh, like portraying a character or not, but it felt like they weren't because mm -hmm. they weren't explicit about it. Um, this is one of those songs, and I kind of like assumed it would have been a character thing. So while listening to it, I didn't really think like I was like, oh, they're doing a character of a guy from the streets, mm -hmm. kind of rather than yeah. This one of any song on the album, this is probably closer to playing a character and a little bit more of a clowny character. Like, there's hints of yeah. what the violent Jay and Shaggy of the future are going to be in, in the sense of how almost nonsensical their approach to the violence is. Right. It, it's it's kind of like the old Eminem kind of stuff, right? Where it's like Slim Shady was like a murderer or whatever. Mm -hmm. Kind of, yeah. Um, 
well before that, mind you. Right, yeah. Yeah, and you could see like where he got some of those influences from being from the area. Oh, right? I think anybody who doesn't acknowledge that Eminem was at least partially influenced by ICP going up is fooling themselves a little bit. Right. Or and that's least, not taking anything from Shady. Or at least like a Detroit style that was happening at the time. Maybe they both got it from somebody else. I don't know. But like you can well, clearly he, see it. Yeah. He, he's men- mentioned Isham as well. Like he was, right. de- he was definitely hearing Isham as he came up and they yeah. were influenced by Isham. And that, that's where I was familiar with him. Like I've ne- never really heard him before but I've heard his name before because of Eminem mm. and all that. Um, I forget what song it's on but like he, uh, Eminem says I'm a mixture of Marilyn Manson and Isham and Ozzy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, not what he is but... <laughs> Strange show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's honestly like those are the three least he's like I would compare him to. <laughs> but... Uh, you think um, more Conway Tweedy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of John Denver. Yeah, a uh, little bit of... Um, uh, oh, fuck, I don't know. That. Uh, um, Anything else to say about Night of the Axe? A couple of lines that I liked was, yeah. uh, female shitting is news to me. <laughs> <laughs> and one naked psycho driving it. <laughs> I know. Those lines, just when I heard them, I was like, oh, those are funny lines. <laughs> the first one you mentioned is a standout to me. That yeah. since, since I was like 15 years old and to this day, that <laughs> line makes me laugh. Female shitting is new to me. Yeah. He, like, he, he, all this heinous stuff that he's doing. These deaths, murder, there's blood everywhere. And he runs in the female John, sees a bitch take a shit, and says, <laughs> fuck that. Let her dookie ass be because female shitting is news to me. <laughs> he, he's drawn the line here and that's where it's at which hey fair enough yeah you gotta draw it somewhere at least he's got something um next song was your rebel flag all right i have a lot to say about this but i'm gonna say one thing first and then i want to hear your thoughts mm-hmm. this is another example of a miller midi production yes <laughs> go crazy yes <laughs> um well it, i i other than just it being the same old like it's mixed too loud um, the the synthes- synthesizer, which is probably the movie again, sounds like somebody trying to play Baby Got Back, but fucking up. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if you notice that when you're hearing that. Like, it's like that dun 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 dun. But it's like a little fucked. Like, it doesn't quite sound like Baby Got Back. And it, it honestly sounds like somebody trying to learn it and just hitting the wrong note on a couple of notes. Um, other than that, I was pretty much just like, okay, yeah, this is another one of those, those uh, it, it sounds like it was done with an 808 and, uh, and a Moog, and uh, there was a DJ scratching that went off time at one point, but, <laughs> but other than that, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm prepared for this now that I've heard the first one. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so th- that was about it. I don't have to rail on it again, but that, that's about where I'm at with this one. Um, I like the message of the song, like, like that, that was something that stood out to me. And I think you actually mentioned this to me one time when uh, when we went to the show, uh, when they came to town here, um, that this this was one that you said like um, stood out to you when you were a kid or something like that. I, I, I want to say, like maybe I'm wrong on this, but you're mentioning something about like the, the, the killing the bigot ass motherfuckers or whatever, whatever the line is, um, that, that, that just... Um, I was like, oh, this is the song, kind of thing. Um, they might have played this when we, we saw them. I can't can't quite remember. I think they played another one. Though, they right? didn't? You're thinking of another one? Yeah. And that other one we're going to explore on the next album. Okay. And um, you're also thinking of a third one. Okay. Where I talked about the lyric that first got out to me. 
Okay. Um, I, I won't mention what album or what song it was. I'll just say the lyric is Dead Bigots Face Down in the Pond. Right. And we'll get to that several episodes from now. But that's because that was the first album I ever listened to. Mm-hmm. And that's why that album, that line struck me. But as I worked my way back, I kept on finding that theme. Yeah. What I really loved about that lyric, and we'll talk about it more at the time, so I don't want to harp too much on it specifically, mm-hmm. was, and I think we talked a little bit about my background. I come from a tiny little redneck town, yeah. and I didn't feel like there was a lot of people who saw the world the way I did or questioned some of the things that they heard around them or that they saw around them without giving them too much detail. So when I heard that line, it just like echoed in my head, and I want to leave that story until we get to that episode. But... This uh, like this is almost one of the first times you hear their anti-bigotry stance and then yeah. really challenging racism in that. So it, it's kind of proof of that early dedication to speaking up against racism. And that's something that the mainstream has actually really only just been noticing about ICP. Yeah. I would trace it back to around the Juggalo March. when yeah. And that was just a couple years back now, um, well, in wasn't 2017. Wasn't there also, okay, like, this is from an outsider perspective, and you'll probably know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to be able to remember uh, the name of the author. But it was a guy who did, like, um, like an in-depth, I'm going to immerse myself in juggalo culture or whatever, around, I want to say, like, 2010. Mason Rabin, I think you're thinking of. I think so, and he's kind of a douche. Um, (laughs) I don't know much about him beyond that book. What you're thinking of is the book, um, You Don't Know Me, But You Hate Probably Hate Me. Where he immersed himself yes. in both juggalo culture and that of fish. Yes, yes, it it is that guy, and I, I, from my uh, understanding, that's when people started going like, oh, juggalos are more than just this or that. Like th- that's when I first started noticing people kind of having that stance. Hmm. But the juggalo march definitely like put more of a, like a mainstream. Lens yeah. On that. Um. Opinions been shifting on juggalos a lot throughout the past decade or so. And we'll cover that as we go through those eras. Yeah. Um, Rabin's book certainly was a part of that. Also, the Juggalo Gathering both yeah. helped and hindered that. Because particularly in the cave in rock days, and we'll talk about those at some point. Yeah. That's a really... It's such an important era to me. I, I, I did two of those gatherings, and they're just amazing. My heart, there's still a little piece of my heart in Hong Kong, because I fucking love those guys. <laughs> But it began to be infiltrated by, like, mainstream people trying to come in and say, who the fuck are Juggalos? And basically, I like, think after that one fucker's article, right, or, or book, or whatever well, the fuck well, it was, right? I think he went to a gathering and wrote a little bit about it, and then he wrote his book, and there was a documentary called American Juggalo yeah. that filmed it, and I think that one kind of went out of its way to make Juggalo seem shitty, and then other ones would try to give, like, a different perspective on it, and eventually people began to realize we don't know anything about these Juggalos, and then they were classified as a gang by the FBI as yeah. well, and, like, it became this controversial thing almost beyond the music, and... I, to me, it's when the march happened, when the Juggalo March on Washington happened, yeah. and there was simultaneously uh, a Donald Trump march yeah. there. And I, I actually wrote an article about it on bradowink.com. Yeah, I remember um, that. Yeah. yeah. There was like, it's so odd that you can have these painted, vulgar Juggalos marching on Washington to say that the insane clown posse is not a gang. <laughs> and that's the second most ridiculous thing right. on the lawn that day. Right. It's fucking obscene state of society and... I honestly don't give a fuck what anybody's politics are less than this because fuck Trump. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not politics. Yeah, yeah, no. It's a ridiculous state that society's in and some people need to be hanging their heads about all that. That's ridiculous. Um, and the, 
like people could go up and I, I heard multiple different reporters like go between the camps and like go to the Trump camp and be harassed and call bitch and call you know like the bad F-bombs and all of yeah. that and Juggalos just be like chill as fuck and offering Fago and stuff like that yeah right it's like yeah like it's this perfect example of not judging a book by its cover well one it's also like I, I would say specifically um, when you look at those two groups um, if before going and talking to each of those groups and kind of getting their, their vibes uh, before the whole Trump thing or whatever if you put those those Juggalos you know sitting around drinking Fago probably stoned out of their minds um, you, you know, blasting ICP beside, you know, a guy that's wearing, like, a polo sweater and, like, all that stuff. You'd be like, oh, okay, this is the lunatic. This this guy's the 100%. the normal guy. And yeah. then that kind of put into perspective how fucked up Trump supporters are when the juggalos are the sane ones there, right? And I felt totally, like... Totally, totally. To me, it also represents the kind of mirror that ICP has always put up to society. Like, juggalos look fucked up, but they're right. pretty sweet people. Nine times out of ten. Yeah, yeah it's, probably nine point five at least. The the people wearing wearing the masks are the the are the dudes in the hats. Well right? said. Well yeah, said. Yeah. Yes. It's it, that, that's that's the the funny thing about this, right? Is and I think everyone's kind of clued into this a little bit more as time goes on. But like, um, the most authentic people you're gonna get are the ones that are most um, like if you look at them and have an opinion right away on like oh that's weird or this is whatever those people are pretty transparent about who they are mm. the people who aren't transparent are the people you gotta fucking be worried about you know what i mean anybody who flies their freak flag yeah you know what they've got the, yeah. the guy trying to look normal that's the guy you should be fucking suspicious yeah. of fuck the guy who's going riding riding around on a on a bike only wearing a thong in winter you're like you, you know, know what? exactly what he's offering that's the weirdest thing that guy does yeah yeah <laughs> He probably goes home and just chills. Yeah. Like a really normal dude after that. Yeah, fucking other guys flying around under eight kids in planes, you know? Like Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so this is like I, I kinda worked my way back from where I started, so I got back to the first Joker's card, which was the oldest, but it was the last one I got to. Um, and yeah, I found out that even this far back they were still talking about, you know, fuck rebel flags and racism and yeah. drawing a really hard line and a lot of rappers like weren't even intentionally going out of their way to do that plenty work for sure yeah but and like very little rock music was i think at that time like rap probably a lot more yeah but no it, it was neat to hear and i like this is a town i come from straight up like people were flying rebel flags and this isn't even america yeah yeah i know you, you can't even pretend to southern pride here I know. <laughs> when people have Confederate flags in Canada, it's because they're racist, 100%. It's the only reason. Fucking challenge me on that, anybody listening. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening and you're flying a rebel flag, you got the wrong guy. Yeah, yeah, like, what are you a rebel? Like, we were, like, still part of the, the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, we just kind of dissolved out of it because they were bored of trying to figure out how to manage Canada. Yeah. Um, but with a white flag, it suits you better. <laughs> um, so, so a, a line that, like there's a couple of funny things in this that that, that came out but, where uh, hoot nanny ass motherfucker <laughs> I really like that one uh, and there was also there's a lot of quotable lines in this like there's a lot of quotable lines a lot of uh, the, those dropout lines where it's like the beat drops and it's and at the end it kind of has like the the um, like wraps up the four bars like the four bars end with um you, you know what I mean? You have like like a, a rhyme scheme of four, basically, where the last one kind of goes bam. Okay, that's yeah. it. 
Um, th there was a lot of that, and that's pretty sophisticated compared to some of these other songs in the early era for them, I would say. Like, that's, that's good. I really enjoyed the song for that. Um, the one thing I did notice that I will uh, kind of slam again is it was either Shaggy or Shaggy's brother. I'm not sure which. Yep. Uh, it had, like, no emotion in the voice and um, sounds like he was reading his raps from a paper because there was a bit of, like, that... You know what I mean? Like, you could tell when a person's reading from something yeah. where it's, like, they're saying the words but they're not feeling the words. There was a lot of that coming mm. through. I felt I'd have to yeah. go through and listen to it again. Yeah. Could have been. That, that's the only criticism I'll have other than that fucking producer. <laughs> <laughs> now... That, now that Bruce is all over it. This last one, I believe, is. And let me actually double check. That. Okay, I'm going to before you double check. My first note on this in big letters is producer is clearly better. Yeah. Whoever did this song isn't that guy. I almost guarantee you. If it is, that guy was just fucking like got hit in the head before doing the other songs. Because this one is like like a real rap producer did it. Well, a funny thing happened around this time. Okay. Um, they decided to say, fuck Chuck the Snake Miller. Okay, good. And they opened up a phone book and looked up studios, and they found something called a Temper Mill Studio. Okay. And this was ran by a young man named Mike Clark. Okay. And they called him up and they said, hey, do you do rap songs? <laughs> and he's yeah. like, yeah, we do rap songs. They're like, really? Because they're fucking at this point. Yeah, they just got and that guy. Yeah, Mike Clark is like busy. They can tell he's distracted. He's barely even listening to what they're saying. He like lists off all these like crazy fresh people he's worked with. And they're like, damn, we got to go in there. And he's the one that like schooled them on what was really going on with Chuck the Snake. And he's like, shows them, oh, you want an 8-away like, kick, like, like, you know, types three buttons and gets like, like yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> that would have taken like seven hours, like $400. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, oh, you're getting ripped off. Yeah. Come with me. Yeah, no, it, it was really noticeable. There, there was like samples. There was, uh, I would imagine it's all sampled, but um, like a, a real drum kit beat, uh, a funk guitar, like everything about that. If I'm not no, mistaken. I don't know if we've thrown the name out. So we're on the last uh, oh. song of the album, Taste, here. Yeah. With, with Ishan yeah. on it, yeah. Um, There's a lot of people on this, but Ishan's a big selling point. They hired him basically to put his name on the album. Right. Okay, um, so, yeah, the, the, the production on this is so much better. Uh, like I said, the funk guitar. I think everything's sampled, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, oof, I don't know if you have the list of samples anywhere, but um, uh, I'm going to do I this don't. without looking it up. I think that they use the same sample of... Uh, a, a couple of lines on a guitar going like -dum. in this song that is also used in a song that Kanye West produced called uh, Classic with KRS-One and uh, Rakim on it. And, and it has a really cool bass line in that song, but um, I think it's the same sample. If I'm wrong, somebody tear me in the one because uh, I'm sure they will. Yeah, I know people get really crazy about samples. Mis misidentified sounds. Um, so yeah, you, what what do you got to tell me about this? Like other than this being a new thing, like it's. Is well, the one thing I mentioned know? is the importance of them getting Esham on the album. Yeah. Um, how they got that, I covered. And that, like they they were very aware of like that's going to be marketing. We can say, hey, we've got Esham 
on our album, people are going to pick it up just to check that out. Right. So they were happy to have him on there. They originally had him on there in a different place too, right in the opening that we didn't play, um, the, the title track, Carnival Carnage. And basically, yeah, we, we skipped that one. But um, that, that, out, that song kind of just repeats like Carnival Carnage, Carnival Carnage. And Isham fucked it up and he recorded Carnival Carnage. <laughs> and then he, he wouldn't re-record it without being paid again. So oh, they just they just had Jay record it. Um, but they had him on taste. They also had Capital E, who was, I believe, a local guy, kind of a friend of theirs. Okay. Um, one of my favorite song uh, lines from that song is where, where he's rapping. And he goes, ICP. And you hear ICP in the background like, What's up, B? Get yeah. your best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Time for me to quit some nets if you don't know now. Tell them what you expect. I think Capital E was the one, uh, I might be wrong about this, he is like, he's pretty, uh, pretty damn good at rapping, but he, like, doesn't enunciate. Is that who I'm thinking of on this? There's yeah, somebody. Probably. Yeah. And he, like, you, you, did you know who he's from? Like, he named himself in it. Yeah, yeah. Guess who's wrong with the SCP? The white devil comes straight from me. I'm coming out of the house like I'm a jury funny man. Yeah, like he's he's noticeable. Like, but everyone on there is like, you're like, okay, these guys are bringing it. And and like, I hate to say it, but ICP isn't at their level yet. It was very noticeable. Um, no, no, straight up, yeah. Other than the lack of enunciation, that was something that fucking kills me. It kills me when people rap fast, but you don't clearly hear what they're saying. And, and there's a little bit of that. Um, uh, there was also like a weird voice doubler at the end that I really liked, where it was like the high-pitched voice over the low-pitched voice going together. I think it was Shaggy doing that, maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, a line that I really liked was getting more pussy than Baldur's Defoe. <laughs> yeah, you'd appreciate who that is, right? <laughs> yeah. That was an Isham line as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a fucking awesome line. Uh, and hungry homeless people committing crime after crime. I really liked that line and how it was delivered. Like, that was a fucking killer line. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but just the delivery on that one really stood out. Um, it, it, it had that like, um, uh, kind of like a like Public Enemy, like a like a Chuck D kind of um, vibe on this one. I, I believe I, that one was by Capital E, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 No, it, it's it, this. This was my favorite on this album. I would say it's a really standout track to me. This one fully encapsulates the entire theme of the album. Yeah. Because. Like, you know, the, the idea of Carnival of Carnage is bringing it into your town, showing you what it's like, giving you a taste of it, and this song encapsulates that perfectly. Right. So, um, I mean, it's not the title track, but it is the closer, and it does a great job of bringing it all together, bringing it all home, and leaving it on a, on a super high note. Right. Now, I'm glad as hell that you caught on to that Mikey Clark connection, because mm -hmm. after they met him for this, it was on from there on. Good. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're going to notice a humongous jump in quality, and I particularly noticed that intro track that we're going to listen to yeah. probably like in 10 minutes because we record these back-to-back. -back. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think that one's going to blow you away. It's a stellar intro. You're going to like it. And that, in case anyone's wondering, is on an album called The Ringmaster, <laughs> the second Joker's card of the first deck, of course. What are you, Chavo Guerrero? Arriba! Viva la raza! Yeah. Anything else to say overall about the Carnival of Carnage, Scott? Uh, no, I, I will say that, uh, as probably predicted, not my favorite album. I like that last song. I like the intro. I like the beginning and the end of this album. Um, I'm really excited to see the next one because 
Oof. The next one is the last one that I would call a transitionary album. They're beginning to find their sound. You can hear big hints of it. They yeah. nail down some absolute classics. And then the third Joker's card, I think, is where they really kind of have it fucking mastered. Okay, sweet. Um, you know my friend Mark. Um, we talk. He's obsessed with a little band. You may have heard of them, and they're called U2. Yes. And I often compare the, the, the third Joker's card and the fourth Joker's card to... Um, well, you know YouTube fairly well, yeah, like yeah. Um, Unforgettable Fire and Joshua Tree. Okay. Like, Unforgettable Fire, YouTube 2 had their sound down pat. Yeah. And it's a classic to fan, but it's like Joshua Tree's where they really yeah, fucking that, blew up. That was the album where everybody was like, yeah, this is good. Yeah, yeah. and same with um, The Great Malenko, which is yeah. the fourth. And we'll talk about why that is, why they went international, essentially, with that album. Right. Uh, we'll talk about uh, during Ringmaster, or Rillabots, what they were doing then and how big they were. Um, Carnival of Carnage on its first day sold 17 copies. <laughs> You'll notice that 17 becomes a running motif throughout the rest of their career. So anytime you hear that album or that number, write it down in your notes because it becomes a major thing and it's sometimes hidden in ways. Like sometimes I'll mention several dates or numbers that add up to 17. It becomes a running theme within their entire career after that. And so it's, it's because like of those numerology. <laughs> There's a lot of numerology yeah. in ICP. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> there is. Um, that becomes a big one. We'll talk about some other running themes. Carnival of Carnage sold quite well overall. Mm -hmm. I think they ended up selling initially in its run somewhere around like 20,000 copies of it in the Detroit area. Right. Ringmaster sells a lot more and gets them some national attention. So we're going to look at that right away. But there's one thing I really want first. What's that? Can I get a whoop whoop? Whoop whoop!